And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West. The most haunted city in the country. Well, today's December 16th. Through the 50th day of the year. 15 days remain to the year is over with. And a lot of folks will be glad to see it go. Well... The Monday is the first day of Hanukkah, so you need to keep that in mind. On this day in 1942, the Holocaust began. SS Chief Heinrich Himmler ordered the Roma candidates for extermination be deported to Auschwitz. And in 1944, Battle of the Bulge began. Surprise attack by three German armies through the Ardennes forest. And had they been successful, it would have extended the war several years more. Well, we've talked about haunted hotels, and I got a uh, interesting email. Wanted me to talk about some of my other books, one of which is called Unfinished Business, and they asked me what business was unfinished. Well, it seems as a result of Today's crime-solving television shows, most folks think through the use of science, every crime can be solved in 60 minutes, taking time out for commercials, of course. But that's not true and has never been true. Though, through the use of modern DNA techniques, more and more cases are being solved than ever before. In fact, some cold cases are being solved using DNA. It's become the rule for most police departments that cold cases are being pulled out of dusty filing cabinets and Evidence has been given a new review using current scientific uh, processes. But what about those that are, you might say, are really old cases? Those from 100 years or more in the past. Can modern techniques work on cases like those? Well, crime scene investigators are, for the most part, scientists and specialists in their own right. Each trained to thoroughly investigate certain pieces or types of evidence. However, some aspects of criminal investigation that are standard today weren't even thought about 100 years ago. Crime scene investigation today consists of lifting fingerprints and looking for DNA evidence. This is a result of relatively recent scientific discoveries. As an example, the Chinese have been using fingerprints as a means of identification, authentication, and verification since before the 3rd century B.C. But the first use of a Fingerprint on the contract in the British Empire was in July of 1858 in Hungapore in India when the local chief magistrate asked a native businessman to put his fingerprints on a contract. It wasn't until July of 1877 that American Thomas Taylor proposed that finger and palm prints left on any object might be used to solve crimes. First known usage of fingerprints in the U.S. was in 1882 when Gilbert Thompson of the U.S. Geological Survey in New Mexico used his own thumbprint on a document to help prevent forgery. And certainly, I mean, I've been had experience with my name being forged on several documents. Uh, luckily, uh, the fingerprints showed that I hadn't been the one to do it. Then, of course, it was Alphonse Bertillon, clerk in the Prefecture of Police in Paris, France, who in 1882 developed a system of classification known as anthropometry, using measurements of various body parts. 
widespread usage of his system again in 1888. He also instituted the use of fingerprints, but only as an assist to the, his own system known as the Bertillon method. The first real use of fingerprints in this country began in 1903 in New York City when two individuals in Leavenworth Penitentiary turned out to have the same Bertillon measurements. That's when you measure the, the head and look for bumps on the scalps and things like that. Fingerprints were found to be more useful in identifying uh, who was who in this particular case. So it was clear it wasn't until after the beginning of the 20th century that fingerprints even looked at as a major method of identification. So how are investigators to track down a faceless killer without the most basic tools that we take for granted today? It became very difficult, and even today, like the, the murders in Utah, not a single clue has come to light about the uh, murders of those uh, three young ladies and young men. You know, DNA profiling has become the subject of hundreds of television crime dramas, but in spite of this exposure, it's not been a allowing forensic investigations for all that, uh, all that long. DNA profiling was first primarily used to determine paternity. It's found in that other uses in the investigative field. First used in the court system in 1986 when police in England asked a molecular biologist by the name of Alec Jeffries who had been investigating the use of DNA for forensic investigation to use DNA to verify the confession of a 17-year-old boy to committing two rape murders in the English, English Midlands. Tests proved the teenager was, in fact, not telling the truth, and the actual attacker was caught, also using DNA testing. You know, it may come as a great surprise, but quite often people confess to crimes they didn't commit, uh, many times just looking for notoriety. Now, we're aware of a few of the unique murder cases from the 1800s and early 1900s, such as Jack the Ripper, who terrorized London during the heady days of the Victorian era, but few are aware of some of the unbelievably monstrous cases that happened in this country during the, the winding years of the 19th century and the early years of the 20th century. So for the next day or so, or the next couple of shows, we're going to look at some of the major unsolved cases of 100 years ago and see if it's possible to use today's scientific methods to solve these cases. That's what I mean by unfinished business, so to speak. You know, murders are difficult to solve when there's clear motive and a known suspect. However, when there's absolutely no motive and not even an inkling of an idea as to whom the suspect might be, that solving a murder case can be almost impossible. And everyone's heard of the infamous Jack the Ripper, also known as the Whitechapel Murderer. That was a name given to an unidentified serial killer who terrorized the Whitechapel section of London in 1888. Now, in the 1880s, the Whitechapel area of London was something of a world unto itself, with its overcrowding, terrible work, living conditions. In the very atmosphere of the area aided the actions of this mysterious killer who slipped through the rainy, foggy London nights, prowling through the winding, dingy streets to ambush his next victim. You know, when I spent some time in England, I went down to Whitechapel, and even today, it's a maze. And... Uh, then I decided to drop in on Sherlock Holmes, 221B Baker Street, which is actually, and has been for a long time, a bank. They get so many letters addressed to Sherlock Holmes, they have a secretary assigned just to answer them. Now, most writers claim Jack the Ripper killed only the five best-known prostitutes, liked by him, by 
According to popular legend, there were there were actually eleven or more murders actually linked to him by the police. There's evidence that he may have killed several more than reported before vanishing into the mist and fog of London. All these associated murders demonstrated the same modus operandi that became known as the Ripper's trademark. Throat slashed, abdominal and genital areas mutilated, removal of internal organs and facial mutilations. Just as today, in the mid-1800s, London was receiving a major influx of immigrants from numerous other countries that swelled the population of London beyond belief. Whether it was immigrants from Ireland or Jewish refugees escaping the pogroms of Tsarist Russia, these newcomers, mostly poor, came with just the clothes on their back, swelled the population of the poor neighborhoods almost to the bursting point. From these struggling immigrants that poured the ever-growing slums that Jack the Ripper chose his victims, committing increasingly gruesome murders till he inexplicably vanished into history. Or did he? Across the ocean in New Orleans, Louisiana, the early 1900s was almost a world unto itself as well. Though it's a major city of the southern United States, it is and always been unlike any other city in the country, primarily due to its French Cajun roots. French Quarter has long been known as an area where dreams are born and one can lose oneself in the sounds of music to be heard uh, in few other places. Also, the aura of mystery and delicious danger that overlies this city is Practitioners of voodoo and other black arts work side by side with those who strive to modernize this steadily growing city. New Orleans was the home of the mysterious and lovely Marie Laveau, called the Queen of Voodoo. She held the entire city in the palm of one delicate hand for several decades. As a major coastal city, New Orleans also boasts an atmosphere unlike few other locations. The night can range from hot and sultry to cool and moist as your Skin is caressed by cool ocean breezes if you're lucky enough to live close to the shore or hot and muggy in the winding streets of the growing city. In short, it's literally unlike any place else, and that may well have been part of the reason New Orleans had its own mystery killer who, interestingly enough, chose his victims from among the more prosperous Italian immigrants. So was it simply a coincidence that Jack the Axe Man is... Many came to call this mysterious killer, chose his victims from among those who came to this country seeking a better life. Many believe he killed only Italian grocers, but in actuality he killed individuals from other professions as well. Even more interesting was the reaction of neighbors who wanted to get involved in these tragedies. These murders gave neighbors and victims the, the chance to settle scores, well or imagined, with those unfortunate enough to get caught up in the tragedy as well. And, of course, there was the media fanning the flames, accusing, trying, and convicting those suspected of being the culprits in the newspapers without any more evidence than the police had. Like the killings attributed to Jack the Ripper, the first killing by Jack the Axeman raised the eyebrows of the victim's social set, but didn't provoke the fear that the additional murders would cause later. It should be considered that the backdrop for these murders was uh, also... Uh, a world war raging in Europe in 1918, and a lot of American soldiers were there as a result. Most of the attention, not only a, not only the city, but the world, was focused on the war news. So in the beginning, more attention was paid to the war news and to the news closer to home. What had become a reign of terror in New Orleans, caught between two worlds, as it were, began on the night of May 23, 1918. Early hours of May 24th, Joseph and Catherine Maggio, a 
The Italian immigrant couple who run a small grocery was discovered in their beds. Dead. They'd been assaulted with their own axe, which had been taken from their own backyard. Throats had been sliced with a razor. In fact, Ms. Maggio's throat had been slashed so deeply her head was almost severed from her body. Kira left the razor lying on the floor in a pool of blood. Subsequent investigation revealed that nothing appeared to have been stolen. Beneath Mr. Maggio's pillow was over $100 in cash from his store. Now, in those days, 1918, $100 was considered a fortune. The killer, who'd also ignored Mrs. Maggio's jewelry lying on a dresser, also apparently entered and left the combination home store by chiseling out a panel from the rear door. In another similarity to the Ripper case, a handwritten message was found written on the sidewalk near the Maggio home. It said Ms. Maggio's going to sit up tonight just like Ms. Tooney. Never discovered who wrote that message. In their enthusiasm to quickly close the case, and based on the unsupported word of a neighbor that he'd seen Andrew Maggio, Joseph's brother, come home between 2 and 3 in the morning, both Andrew and Jake, Maggio's brothers who also lived in the combination home business, were arrested on literally no evidence other than they lived in the same house. Police were somewhat embarrassed to have to release them shortly after that. Long-time members of the police force and some reporters, to be sure, remember in 1911, three other Italian grocers had been murdered by an axe-wielding killer. In two of the cases, their wives had also been murdered. Victims were identified as Cruti, Rossetti, and Tony Chambra. The, uh, now, more recent research I did when I wrote uh, the book Unfinished Business has failed to find any killings of victims by these names, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. There were those who thought that Miss Tony in the message found on the sidewalk referred to Tony Chiambra's wife. As you might guess, these cases were never solved as well. Should be noted there were a number of problems with the investigation of this case. The detective placed in charge of the Maggio case was killed by a burglary suspect. So a new lead detective had to be assigned who was unable to find the numerous leads mentioned to the press by his predecessor. Now, such was the barrage of lurid headlines from the battlefields of France that filled the front pages of the local papers that by the time of the second attack, most people had forgotten about the first attack. In June of 1919, a Polish immigrant by the name of Louis Bessemer and his paramour, Harriet Lowe, uh, were attacked in their bed with an axe taken from their yard by a mysterious killer. Now, as you might guess, based on the names, they weren't married and a lot of the neighbors seemed shocked to find out the couple was what was called living in sin. Who had there been an attack? This isn't the first killing. A panel had been removed from the door to allow the killer to enter the home, and once again, nothing was stolen from within the house or the business. Victims had their throats slashed and their faces were mutilated, though whether intentionally or as a result of the attack was uncertain. But in this instance, both the victims survived the attack. Though it must be admitted, Harriet Lowe died of her injuries later on. Now, Lowe's behavior was odd, to say the least. Though she professed not to know the identity of her assailant, she first accused Bessemer of trying to kill him and said he was a German spy. District Attorney, under intense pressure to solve the axe murders, based on what he called a deathbed statement by Lowe, even though she wasn't dead, and ignoring the similarities between this attack and the Maggio murders, charged Besser with the murder of Lowe when she died two months after the attack. And while he didn't accuse Bessemer of the earlier murder of Maggio's, he certainly did nothing to discourage such talk among the citizens of New Orleans. 
Well, unfortunately for the district attorney, charging Bessemer with the murder of Lowe didn't stop the real Jack the X-Man. The DA brought Bessemer to trial for the murder of Lowe. Bessemer was acquitted. Which left the DA with a great deal of egg on his face. There'd been a rumor that the mafia was involved in the Maggio killing since they were Italian, but since Bessemer was an Italian, this line of inquiry uh, fell short, so to speak. On its face, the Bessemer case seemed tied to the Maggio murders. First witness, John Zanka, arrived at the Bessemer grocery in the early hours of June 28, 1918, to deliver bread and cakes. He found a panel of the door had been carved out, so he pounded on the door till a groggy Louis Bessemer, blood streaming from a bloody head wound, answered the door. Zanka pushed past him and discovered Lowe in her bed with a bloody wound to her head. Well, in the hospital, Harriet Lowe made the statements about Bessemer being a German spy, which brought in the federal government. Interestingly enough, he was later cleared of being a spy. And it should be understood the only evidence ever submitted Bessemer was guilty of anything were those completely unsupported statements. As she began to talk about the attack, she said Bessemer was sitting in the desk working on his accounts when she went to the kitchen. According to her stories, while she was checking on some prunes she had been cooking and she blacked out. She believed she had been attacked in the kitchen and the body was moved as she remembered nothing of the attack nor about going to bed. Then she said, in spite of not remembering going to bed, she remembered waking up in the bed and seeing a man standing over her, making some sort of motion with his hands. And then she saw the axe. According to her, at this point, that's when she started screaming. Gave a brief description of the man she saw standing over the bed. He was tall, heavy set. Certain he was a white man with dark brown hair that almost stood on end. Wearing a white shirt open at the neck. Next thing she remembers waking up in the gallery with her face in a pool of blood. Of course, in the next interview, her story changed in several major respects. In spite of the continually changing narrative, the police dutifully followed up on every allegation she made, to include the one that it was Bessemer that tried to kill her. Well, how much of these changes were due to the urging of the police, and how much were based on her inability to think clearly after the head injuries was never discussed. And if the police could get you to say what they wanted you to say, they were more than happy to move in and follow up on those unsupported allegations. Based entirely on her statements, and with some relief, police officials decided Bessemer's case was not an X-Man attack, but that Bessemer himself had inflicted his own wounds in order to cover up trying to kill Harriet Lowe. Now, it has to be remembered it's before the age of forensic science when a policeman's gut feelings solved cases, whether they were correct or not. That wasn't really a concern. Uh, closing cases, especially high-profile cases, was the order of the day, especially in regard to the X-Men. Unfortunately for the police, the jury didn't agree with their gut feelings. There were a few other interesting tidbits that came to light about the Bessemer case. Harriet Lowe became the center of a media circus as she continually made scandalous and often false statements relating to both the attacks and the character of Louis Bessemer. Town's Picayune newspaper sensationalized Lowe and her outspoken nature upon discovering she really wasn't the wife of Bessemer, but his mistress. Charity Hospital source discovered the scandal when Bessemer asked to be directed to the room of Ms. Harriet Lowe and was inevitably denied access as a woman by that name was a patient. Bessemer's legal wife arrived in Cincinnati from Cincinnati in the, the days immediately after the discovery, which further inflamed the ongoing drama. Lowe gained further media attention as she repeatedly made statements which voiced her dislike of the New Orleans chief of police as well as her reluctance to comply with police questioning. 
And after the truth of her marital status was revealed publicly, Lowe told reporters from the Times-Picayune she would no longer aid the police in their investigation. She suspected it had been Chief Mooney who'd first informed the press about the fact she wasn't married to Bessemer. Despite the scandal and her delirious statement that Art suggested Bessemer was a German spy, she returned to the home she shared with Bessemer weeks after the attack. One side of her face was partially paralyzed due to the severity of the attack. She actually died August 5, 1918, just two days after doctors performed surgery in an effort to repair her partially paralyzed face. Just prior to her death, she told authorities she suspected it was Louis Bessemer that had attacked her. He spent nine months in jail before being released by a jury that took only ten minutes to reach a verdict. In fact, the investigation was sabots. The two lead investigators were demoted for incompetence. Well, over the next 14 months, Jack the Axeman added a number of names to his list of victims. August 5, 1918, the same day Harriet Lowe died in Charity Hospital after a failed surgery, the mysterious killer attacked 28-year-old Anna Snyder, also known as Ms. Edward Snyder, who survived the attack but was unable to identify her attacker. She reported she awoke to find a dark figure standing over her just as he bashed her head in repeatedly. Her scalp was torn open and she bled freely. She wasn't discovered until sometime after midnight when her husband, who'd worked late, came home. Interestingly enough, in this, the Axeman changed his method somewhat. In the Snyder case, there was no door panel chiseled out. Instead, he, uh, or maybe she, came in through an open window. Additionally, the police never found an axe, leaving all to wonder what weapon had been used for this particular attack. But, as usual, nothing was stolen from the, the home. Frankly, the failure of the Axeman to kill Miss Snyder was somewhat surprising as she was nine months pregnant at the time of the attack. Head was bashed and she was bleeding horribly, but made a full recovery and only a week after the attack gave birth to a healthy baby. When questioned, she could remember nothing about the attack. She was just happy to be alive. If anything, uh, the deviation from the Axeman's modus operandi should have raised questions about whether this was a related attack or not, but... In keeping with a lot of the other incompetence demonstrated by the New Orleans police, it did not raise any questions. Her husband told police nothing was stolen from the home besides six or seven dollars that had been in his wallet. Windows and doors of the apartment appeared not to have been forced open, and authorities came to the conclusion the woman was most likely attacked with a lamp that had been sitting on a nearby table. James Gleason, who police said was next convict, was arrested shortly after Snyder was found. Now, Gleason was later released due to a complete lack of evidence and stated he originally ran from the authorities because he had so often been arrested. Lead investigators began to publicly speculate the attack was related to the previous incidents involving Bessemer and Maggio. Now, due to the delay between the first and second attacks, nobody really expected another attack almost immediately. But on August 10, 1918, Joseph Romano, an elderly man who Earned his living as a barber, not a grocer, though he was Italian, was attacked while sleeping in his bed and died at Charity Hospital. In this particular case, also sleeping in the house was Joseph's two nieces, Pauline, who was 18, and Mary, who was 13. Though both girls were awakened by sounds coming from their uncle's room, only Pauline investigated. Mary saw nothing but screamed just the same since her sister's screams scared the crap out of her. Pauline later testified the two girls heard noises coming from their uncle's room, and Pauline opened the, the connecting door to see a tall, dark, heavy-set man wearing a dark suit and a black slouch hat standing over her uncle's bed. She claimed that she wasn't able to 
I didn't tell if the mystery man was black or white, although she thought maybe he'd been white. And she said that he had vanished as if he had wings. Now, as is the case in regard to many witness statements, over the weeks after the witnesses uh, made their initial statements about the attack on uh, her uncle, Pauline talked to many reporters and began to remember many things she couldn't possibly have known. Additionally, some of the early statements she reported were decidedly odd. For example, she said when she opened the door and saw the man standing over her uncle, she screamed, and the mystery man seemed to literally vanish. Then her uncle, who staggered out of bed, stumbled into the parlor, and was supposed to have said, I've been hit, I don't know who did it, called the charity hospital. And Joseph Romano was said to have actually walked to the ambulance, even though he later died at the hospital. According to police, this attack had all the signs ex uh, expected from an Axeman attack. There was a panel chiseled out of the rear door, and there was a bloody axe found in the backyard of the Romano home. Once again, though there was money in Romano's bedroom, nothing was taken. Of course, even though the police now had at least two bloody axes in evidence, nobody even thought about the possibility of taking fingerprints. Such things just weren't done back then. Then, too, since there, were, there was no central file of fingerprints against which to check the, the ones that might have been taken from the axes, what good would they have been? Now, this case was going to be solved the old-fashioned way, with shoe level and gut feelings. Fourth attack also brought out a wave of hysteria that literally swept over the immigrant neighborhoods. Men began to arm themselves to protect their families and stayed on guard at night. Strangers were viewed with great suspicion, of course. No one could be sure the axe man was really a stranger. Maybe somebody from the neighborhood had literally lost his or her mind. Now, the news of the Romano attack also had to result that brought out a number of previously unreported incidents that may or may not have been relevant. As with any crime of this magnitude, everybody wanted to both distance themselves from the mayhem, but at the same time get their 15 minutes of fame by maybe helping to solve it. Al Duran, another grocer, reported finding an axe and a chisel outside his back door on the morning of August 11th. Another grocer, Joseph LeBouf, who lived only a block from the Romano home, reported finding somebody chiseled a panel out of his rear door on July 28th. He also reported finding an axe lying in the backyard. Seemed like everybody had a story about the axe man. Between the fourth and fifth attack, some seven months elapsed, causing the citizens in New Orleans to breathe a sigh of relief. Smart Money said the killer had run his course in the area or had been arrested for some other charge or maybe killed, and it just never was reported. Whatever may have been the reason for the lonely attacks, it was thought by some and hoped by many that the attacks were over once and for all. But on March 10, 1919, the mysterious axeman entered the home of the Cortemiglias and attacked Father Charles. Mother Rosie and her daughter Mary Charles and Mary, uh, Charles and Rosie survived. Mary died. In the midst of mourning her dead child, Rosie Cortemiglia accused numerous people of being the killer before she finally accused two neighbors. Rolando Giordano and his son Frank Giordano of being the ones that broke into her bedroom and attacked her husband, herself, and her child. And even though her husband testified to the two accused neighbors weren't the killers, the jury took the unsupported word of the grieving mother and sentenced both, one to prison and the other to death. I know her husband denied at trial that it was Giordano's who attacked him, and Rosie finally admitted under questioning that her memory was affected. Unsupported word of a mother who lost her child swayed the jury. After all, everybody hoped it was the Giordano so that this nightmare could come to an end. 
Seemed that the Orlando Giordano and his son Frank responded to her screams and came to her rescue. Her thanks for their help was to accuse them of being the killers of her daughter. It also later came out she bore a business-related grudge against the two, and her state of mind after injuries and the murder of her child, she was against anybody. They didn't seem to care who it might be in order to bring this matter to a halt. In some quarters, some thought if someone could be convicted, maybe the real killer might go someplace else. Eventually, after languishing in jail and after Rosie admitted in court she'd lied because she hated the Giordanos, both of the Giordanos were visually absolved of the crimes, though both of their lives are ruined by the lies told in court. August 10, 1919, Steve Boca, a New Orleans grocer, was attacked but survived. First anybody knew about this attack was when Boca staggered from his home and in the nearby, to the nearby room of Frank Janusa. Boca's skull was split open and he was bleeding heavily. Janusa immediately called for help and Boca was transferred to the charity hospital. Though he did recover from his wounds, he wasn't able to tell investigators anything about his attacker. He could only remember waking up to see a dark figure leaning over him and seeing the axe coming toward his head. And even though the crime scene exhibited all the signs it was an axe-man attack, the police demonstrated some frustration and a lack of due care regarding who they accused. They immediately arrested Frank Janusa for the attempted murder of Boca. When Boca vehemently de defended his friend, the police were forced to dismiss the charges. But it does show the level of frustration to which the police had arrived. They were willing to accuse each other if it would get it, make it stop. On evening of September 2nd, a New Orleans druggist by the name of William Carlson was sitting up in his bed reading. Heard a sound at his back door and gun in hand answered the door calling out for whoever was at the door to make himself known. When nobody responded, he fired through the door, aiming for where somebody had to be standing in order to reach the back door. Now since that whole neighborhood was on edge as a result of the murders, the sound of the gunshot brought the police quickly and while nobody was found in the backyard of the Carlson home and no sign that Carlson hit anybody with his wild shot, chisel marks were found on one of the panels of the back door. Many believe it was only his quick shot that saved him from being another victim of this dreaded killer. And suddenly there was hope. Maybe Carlson had actually hit the mysterious axe man. Maybe wounded, he'd gone off by himself to die. Unfortunately, this turned out to be a false hope. September 3rd, 1919, 19-year-old Sarah Lawman was attacked, but she survived. It's amazing how many of the axe man's victims survived lived alone and would likely have bled to death from her wounds had not some neighbors, when she failed to answer her bell, broke into her home and found her unconscious in her bed. A bloody axe was found on the ground beneath an open window. The young woman was rushed to the hospital, and as a result of the quick treatment, she survived. It was determined by the doctor she had a concussion from being hit in the head with an axe, and though she fully recovered, she never regained her memory of the incident. Like all the other victims that had survived the attacks by this mystery man, she could remember nothing about the attacker. And though the killer used an open wood rather than chiseling a panel out of the door in this particular case, the police believed she'd been another victim of the dreaded axe man. But with seven attacks to investigate, the authorities didn't have a single clue as to the identity of this mysterious killer. The Giordano convictions notwithstanding. Finally, August 27, 1919, grocer Mike Pepitone was attacked and killed in his bed. Miss Pepitone claimed that she awoke to hear the sounds of a struggle coming from her husband's bedroom. Apparently, she and her husband slept in separate bedrooms. 
Said that she entered the adjoining room where her husband slept in time to see a man disappear through another door that led from her husband's bedroom. She screamed loudly, which woke up their six young children and also began to scream. It was bedlam in a short period of time. Neighbors quickly summoned police. They found a panel chiseled from the door and a bloody axe lying on the back porch. Mike Pepitone was dead, though. And while his wife had seen the man running from the room, she wasn't able to give anything more than a general description. There's been a lot of speculation about the identity of the New Orleans axe man, but there never been any proof as to his real identity. As was remarked earlier, it's interesting to note that even in the midst of a series of unsolved murders, one victim used the situation to try to get revenge on two completely innocent neighbors due to a pre-existing dislike. Rather than thoroughly investigate the facts, the police took her word for the identity of the killers, and both were sentenced to prison before it was discovered she'd lied. Situations such as this that help make this case so hard to solve. Seemed that with the murder of Mike Pepitone, Jack the Axeman had ended his time in New Orleans, but there is an interesting postscript to this particular story. December 20th, 1920, a former New Orleans resident by the name of Joseph Mumphrey was strolling down a Los Angeles street. Heavily veiled woman dressed in black stepped out of a doorway and emptied a revolver into Mumphrey's body. Killer then stood over Mumphrey's dead body and made no attempt to escape. When arrested, the woman first said her name was Esther Albano and that she wouldn't say why she'd murdered Mumphrey. Then under questioning, she admitted her name was Ms. Mike Pepitone, claimed that she had seen Joseph Mumphrey run from her husband's room. She claimed he was Jack the Axeman and she was merely carrying out some delayed justice. And while investigation showed that Mumphrey had, in fact, spent a lot of time in jail in New Orleans, he'd, he did have quite a record. He'd been out of jail on the date of each of the Axeman murders. Police in New Orleans were jubilant, claiming the Axeman was dead once and for all. But a lot of residents weren't sure. No proof that Mumphrey had killed anybody, knowing him as Mike Pepitone's word that he had killed her husband. Frankly, if there'd been... No evidence Mumphrey might not be the killer. And whether correct or not, as the police did, we could put close to this case. However, in spite of rumor to the contrary, the killings didn't stop. Though the New Orleans police did quit investigating. But consider what happened in Alexandria, Louisiana. Small town in Nepetes Parish, Louisiana, about 200 miles northwest of New Orleans. Located almost in the center of the state. December of the year 1920, when a very bloody murder took place in Alexandria. About one in the morning on a cold December evening, Rose's Barrow abruptly awoke, alarmed by a presence in her bedroom. She saw this figure attack her husband, and it turned its bloody weapon on her. She clearly saw the axe being swung at her, and when it contracted, one more time, contacted with her head, she didn't know anything else. Woke about three hours later to find her husband dead and her 20-month-old daughter unconscious and bleeding. Her five boys were asleep unharmed in the next room. Cradling her bleeding infant in her arms, Rosa ran out of the house screaming for help. When police were summoned, it was discovered that Joseph had bled out. Similarities between this attack and the New Orleans Axeman killings were startling, though it would seem not to really have been appreciated by authorities. Joseph and Rosa Sparrow were... The Italian proprietors of a grocery store is where most of the victims in New Orleans. Killer had come into the home through an open window. 
but he was carrying an axe taken from the backyard and a butcher knife taken from the grocery. And he left behind a railroad coupling pin showing a, at least a minimum connection with the railroad that ran through the town. The Scalises had... Um, okay. In the initial attack on Joseph Sparrow, the killer had broken his jaw and sliced his throat. Rosa Sparrow had cut as well, but not as severely as her husband. Her infant daughter died of her injuries. Like the New Orleans attacks, there was cash in the house, but nothing was taken. No suspects were identified, though a black carpenter who had done work for the Sparrows was arrested when he was found to have blood on his clothing. After an investigation, he was released. No further suspects were ever identified. Then in DeRider, Louisiana, January 14, 1921, this is a small town about 70 miles southwest of Alexandria. Giovanni, or John, Orlando was found sliced and bloody along with his wife and two small children. He was uh, rushed to the hospital but died in surgery. Once again, the killer entered the house through an open window. And even though there was money available in the home, nothing was taken. He also left behind, alongside the body of Giovanni, his weapon of choice, a bloody axe. Maria Londo and her two children, who'd been sleeping in their parents' bed, were all badly cut, but survived their injuries. As in the earlier attacks, no suspects were identified, but the police immediately arrested a black man who was described as a half-wit, but he was soon released. I mean, after all, there was no evidence. Then in Lake Charles, Louisiana, in the early hours of April 12, 1921, small town about 50 miles south of DeRider, another similar killing took place. About 3 o'clock in the morning when Marlena Scalisi ran screaming from her home calling for help. The neighbors all converged on her home to find Miss Scalisi literally covered with blood and her husband Frank lying on the bed, his neck broken. Well, they had five children, one of whom slept with the parents, the other four slept in another room. The couple also ran a small grocery out of their home to supplement Frank's wages from his job at the Powell Lumber Company. This particular case, the murderer had entered the home through an open window carrying an old axe he found in a neighbor's yard. When he entered, he used the axe to immediately kill Frank and then raised his weapon to kill the sleeping mother and child. Problem for the killer was that the axe was old and had been properly cared for by its owner. And as his weapon descended toward the sleeping woman and child, the head of the axe came off from the handle and hit the wall, making a loud noise. The old wooden handle did hit the sleeping woman. It didn't do much harm couple of splinters. At her scream, the intruder ran from the room. Marlena grabbed her sleeping baby and ran into the adjoining room where her 10-year-old daughter Mary was sleeping, gave the ba baby to Mary to, before running outside to call for help from the neighbors. Now Mary, who'd been awakened by the noise and the screams, got a good look at the assailant and described him as short, stout, and black. Now this, of course, raises questions about whether or not this was actually the Axeman of New Orleans who been described by more than one witness as being a white man. No question that the modus operandi in the reported axe murders were similar enough to support the thesis that the same man did all the killings, but none of the victims could identify who attacked them, and the few witnesses were of little help. Though several were arrested and two were tried and convicted, it was later clear that the witnesses had lied in order to get the two convictions and were forced to retract their testimony. Officials were just happy to be able to mark case closed on these murders, and would have indicted a ham sandwich if it had mollified the terrified public. Evidence be damned. 
But whoever the killer known as Jack the Axe Man might have been, he was never identified, and certainly his identity has never been brought to light over the years. Now, there was a lot of evidence that the killings may have had some relationship to the railroad because in various towns along the, the right-of-way, there were a number of similar killings. But the next case I'm going to talk about was actually made famous by none other than Edgar Allan Poe when he wrote uh, The Mystery of Marie Loger, which he published in 1842. And though he did nothing to solve the case, he did call national attention to the matter. Now, putting Poe's story aside, the actual murder victim was a beautiful young woman by the name of Mary Cecilia Rogers. She believed to have been born in Lyme, Connecticut, about 1820. She found dead July 28, 1841, when her lifeless body was pulled from the Hudson River. And though this murder was never solved, it became a national sensation involving a number of prominent people. Now, everybody who knew her agreed Mary Rogers was a truly beautiful young woman. Working in a tobacco store in New York City was frankly showcased by the proprietors and incentive to get more customers to come in since it was clear her beauty brought in a large number of customers, many very distinguished men of the time who might not otherwise have favored this store with their trade if she'd not been there to help them with their purchases. No, there were no contemporary rumors of her having any affairs with some of her famous wealthy customers. It was certainly a possibility. When her body was found dumped in the Hudson River, most assumed that she'd been the victim of gang violence, and the police did not attempt to dissuade any of those who reached that particular conclusion. And this would probably have been the end of the story, had not a witness come forward to claim that Mary had been dumped in the river after dying during a failed abortion attempt. Now, it was true that her boyfriend's suicide note suggested a possible involvement on his part, but there was never any evidence revealed that, to confirm she might have been pregnant. Mary lived in a boarding house run by her mother, Phoebe Rogers. Her father died in a steamboat, steamboat explosion when she was 17. And deciding she needed to obtain employment in part to help her mother, Mary obtained a job at a tobacco shop owned by John Anderson. Now, she got a very generous salary in large part due to her beauty, not for any scares she might possess in the way of retail experience. It should also be noted her customers weren't shy in expressing their admiration for her beauty. One well-to-do individual spoke of spending an entire afternoon in the store exchanging teasing glances with the young woman. Another even published a poem in the New York Herald discussing her heaven-like smile. Found favorite the likes of James Fenimore Cooper, Washington Irving, Fritz Green Halleck, an American poet and a personal secretary and advisor to John Jacob Astor. In addition to the involvement of such prominent men of the day, there was also a number of news reports that seemed to mark her as Somewhat unstable. It's interesting to note that a mere clerk in a tobacco shop would rate such news coverage, but there you are. For example, on October 5, 1838, the New York Sun reported Miss Mary Cecilia Rogers had disappeared from her home. According to the Sun, Phoebe Rogers, Mary's mother, had reportedly found a suicide note which the local coroner analyzed and said revealed a deep and unalterable determination to destroy herself. But on October 6, 1838, the Times and Commercial Intelligence reprinted a story that said the disappearance of Mary Rogers was a hoax and she only went to visit a friend living in Brooklyn. Of course, there was no evidence supporting either the disappearance or the friend that was supposedly lived in Brooklyn. 
She also be noted it was the New York Sun that was involved in the Great Moon Hoax of 1835, which referred to a series of six articles beginning August 25, 1835, which reported the discovery of life and a civilization on the moon. These discoveries, which supposedly reprinted from the Edinburgh Current, uh, were attributed to the astronomer Sir John Herschel. Unfortunately for the Sun, these articles turned out to be false. It was said to have actually been written by Richard Adam Locke, a reporter who worked for the Sun. Anything to get readers, don't you know? Many believe the story of the disappearance of Mary Rogers was itself another hoax. When she returned to work, one paper reported it was a major publicity stunt orchestrated by none other than John Anderson, her employer. July 25, 1841, Mary Rogers told her fiancé, Daryl Payne, that she was going to visit her aunt and some other family members. However, July 28, 1841, the police found Mary's corpse floating in the Hudson River near Hoboken, Hoboken, New Jersey. Hoboken, New Jersey. Due to the prominent people she associated with, it was no wonder the case gained national attention. Details of the case suggested she'd been murdered, or maybe her body was dumped in the river by abortionist uh, Madame Restell after a failed procedure. The, uh, the famed abortionist, uh, Madame Restell, was actually Anne Tro Loman, but she went under the name uh, Madame Restell, both for anonymity and she thought it sounded fancy. There was also no evidence she had been pregnant. She had been remembered in 1841. Abortions were not illegal in New York, so why did they dump the body in the river? been much easier just to call the police and say she died during the procedure. No harm, no foul. But they didn't do that either. During the extended inquest held into Mary's death, Mary's fiancé, Daniel Payne, committed suicide October 7, 1841. He overdosed on laudanum during a bout of heavy drinking. Allegedly left a suicide note that was found among the papers on his person where, uh, where he died. Word on the note was, as reported in the press, said uh, to the world, here I am on the very spot. May God forgive me for my misspent life. Which was certainly a peculiar phraseology. Led many to believe he had something to do with Mary's death. Though he had never been accused of involvement, and no evidence ever surfaced that tied him to her death. Certainly in 1841, if one was very careful, getting away with murder was a definite possibility. But in regard to the death of Mary Rogers, though it rose to the national prominence, this story was, some, uh, was something that was pushed out of the limelight as soon as possible. After all, some of her many admirers are men of national, maybe international, reputation. If she died during an abortion, who was the purported father? Certainly, it couldn't have been any of these rich and famous men, could it? An example of those who would have been caught up in the, in the above-board investigation was Fritz Green Halleck, a known admirer of the young woman, one of the initial trustees of the Astra Library. The mere smell of impropriety could have led to major embarrassment not only for Halleck but for Astra himself. And it should be kept in mind that the law enforcement in New York at the time was not above taking a bribe to look the other way, and they're still not, for that matter. When Frederica Loss came forward in November of 1842 and claimed Mary died during a failed abortion, police not only refused to believe this she could be a witness, but also refused to even investigate the possibility. Now, this was a case tailor-made for DNA, if there ever was one. If Mary died during a botched abortion, though only the press claimed such a reason for her death, why did her mother or fiancé not come forward and support the possibility? I mean, certainly her mother would know if she was pregnant. Authorities never really investigated this possibility. It seemed even local law enforcement that would become the famed NYPD wanted this case caused quickly. 
we may never know what the real truth was in this particular case. Now, between the years 1898 and 1912, entire families across the country were killed in their sleep with an axe. Due to the lack of communication between law enforcement agencies, each of these killings were actually treated as an isolated event. At the time, the very concept of a serial killer was unheard of. But without a doubt, the Velisca axe murderers qualify as the work of a serial killer. Our story begins with the Moore family. Father Josiah, Mother Sarah, and the children, Herman, Mary, Arthur, and Paul. This is a well-off and very well-known family in the town of Aliska, Iowa. In addition to everything else that the Moors had, they are also big workers in the local Presbyterian church. In fact, on the evening of June 9, 1912, the entire family was at the church for the Children's Day program. As was customary in this tight-knit town where everybody knew everybody, when the Moore family left for their home about 9.30, they took with them two friends and her 10-year-old daughter, Mary, 8-year-old Ina Stillinger and 12-year-old Lena Stillinger. Based on the distance the Moore house was from the church, the Moore family and their guests arrived home about 10 p.m. Evidence showed they had a late snack of milk and cookies before going to bed. Early on the morning of June 10th, when Mary Peckham, the Moore's, uh, the Moore's elderly neighbor, glanced out her window, she, uh, she became concerned. Immediately felt something that wasn't right. The Moore household was much too quiet. The curtains were still tightly drawn over the windows, and nobody had come out to begin the morning chores. And this, in her experience, was highly unusual. Going outside, Mary Peckham saw that uh, the chickens were still in their pens, and she could hear the horses neighing in their stalls in the barn. As her concern rose, she walked slowly over to the front door and knocked loudly. Didn't get an answer, so she tried the door and found it was locked. Tried to peek in the windows, but the curtains were drawn down tightly. More and more, she knew something was wrong. Going back to her own home, she called Ross Moore, Josiah Moore's brother. He went to the front door and knocked. He was shouting for his brother and didn't get a response. His own concern now rising, he used his own key to open the front door and enter that dark house, leaving Mary out on the front porch. Slowly and quietly, he crossed the front parlor and opened the door to the downstairs guest room. Inside, he found two bodies lying on the bed, their faces covered with an overcoat. Headboard of the bed was covered with cast-off blood. Not wanting to explore any further on his own, he returned to the front porch and told Mary something had happened and asked her to contact the local peace officer, Hank Horton. Some time before Horton arrived, but he was accompanied by the Presbyterian minister, Wesley Ewing, and Dr. J. Clark Cooper and Dr. Edgar Howe. Men conducted a search of the house and found everybody inside was dead. The entire Moore family, as well as the two Stillinger girls, had been beaten to death with the blunt side of an axe to the point their skulls had been almost obliterated. Even the most sympathetic viewers would call the suing investigation something of a circus. However, in spite of the confusion, there were some useful clues found. Though nothing suggested a motive for the killings, it appeared the entire family had murdered in their sleep sometime between midnight and five in the morning. Appeared the killer or killers had taken an oil lamp from a cupboard and bent the wick to keep the illumination dim enough not to wake the victims, but bright enough so the killer could see what he or she was doing. Circumstances suggested the killings began with Josiah and Sarah in the master bedroom and moved to the bedroom next to their parents and killed the four more children. Last to be killed were the two Stillinger girls in the guest room downstairs. Appeared the killer had been in the Moore's barn for some time, watching the house, waiting for the family to go to bed and fall asleep. And he or she had taken Josiah Moore's own axe and entered the house through an unlocked back door. 
A lot of country folks didn't know what door locks were. I remember growing up, uh, my grandmother's uh, in Arkansas. Back door was you left unlocked. It was suggested 12-year-old Lena Stillinger may have been the only one of the victims to wake up during her attack. From her position on the bed, it appeared she'd tried to wiggle away from the attacker. Her nightgown was pushed up around her waist. Her undergarments were under the bed. No evidence she had been uh, raped, but it is impossible to rule out a sexual motive for the killings. The partially clean but still bloody axe was found in the guest room, along with part of the broken keychain. Inexplicably, a two-pound slab of bacon wrapped in a dish towel was found propped against one wall. They never did figure out what that was about. In the kitchen, a plate of uneaten food was found sitting beside a bowl of bloody water, which suggested the killer had taken the time to prepare himself a meal, though apparently he didn't eat it all. It's assumed that he had washed his hands in that bowl of bloody water. Inexplicably, the killer had covered the crushed heads of each victim with fabric. In case of Josiah and Sarah, he used blankets with the children. It was various pieces of clothing. The killer had also taken the time to cover all the mirrors and windows in the house with aprons and pieces of clothing he had taken from various dressers around the house. One finer factor to be considered was that the investigation determined the murders then went back to each body after killing them to destroy each skull with numerous vicious blows of the axe. Raising of the axe had been so vicious there were multiple gouges found in the ceiling above the moors' beds. From the fact that nothing was missing except for the key to the house that had been used to lock all the doors by the killer when he or she left, it's clear that theft had not been the reason for the attacks. It's not the police baffled in determining the reason for such a vicious attack. It seemed to them the attack had been far too brutal to be a random attack. Looking for a motive, suspicion soon fell on Frank Jones, a prominent member of the community and a state senator. Jones once owned a farm equipment business and just hired more to work for him for seven years as an equipment salesman. But Moore left Jones's employment and opened his own business, taking Jones' most profitable accounts with him. He also unsubstantiated rumors that Moore also enjoyed the charms of Frank's daughter-in-law. The end result was the two men hated each other to the point they would cross the street not to have to come in contact with each other. And the other reason that Jones was a prime suspect was he was a Methodist. Therefore, the Presbyterians were all sure that Frank was the killer, where all the Methodists were just as positive he was innocent. Feelings ran so high that Detective James Wilkerson of Kansas City had been Asked to look into the matter, suggested that the grand jury be convened to determine once and for all if Senator Frank had any involvement in the murders. From written records, it's clear that Wilkerson did not truly believe Frank had committed the murders, but he believed it was possible Frank had hired somebody to commit these heinous crimes. Also thought he knew who Frank had hired, a man by the name of William Blackie Mansfield. Mansfield long been suspected of the axe murders of his own family in Blue Island, Illinois. Unfortunately for Wilkinson's theory, payroll records reveal that Mansfield had been 1,400 miles away from the Villa on the day of the killings. Of course, even though Mansfield was cleared, it didn't stop many from believing Frank had paid someone else to kill the Moors. In the end, the grand jury couldn't return a true bill indicting Frank. The investigation rumors eventually ruined his political career, though. Under pressure to solve this heinous crime, authorities grasped at every possible clue that might reveal the killer. Another suspect in town who many suspected might be involved, though he had no personal beef with the Moors, his actions were odd enough to gain the attention of all that saw him. And his evidence piled up, he seemed tailor-made to fit the bill for the killer. This particular person was a wandering English preacher by the name of Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly, who was known to authorities as a sexual deviant. In fact, he'd been in and out of mental institutions his entire life. 
Two days before the Moors were killed, Kelly had been caught peeping into windows around town. There were witnesses who swore that Kelly had been in the Presbyterian church during the church function that the Moors had attended. From the position and angles of the blows, investigators believed that Kelly was left-handed. Kelly was left-handed. Evidence that Kelly had caught a train out of Alaska around 5 o'clock in the morning before the bodies had been discovered. Witnesses also claimed that about 5.19 in the morning, Kelly told a couple of train stations that a grisly murder had just taken place in Alaska. This was about two hours before the bodies were discovered. Also discovered that in a town down the train line, Kelly had taken some bloodstained clothes to be dry-cleaned. Of course, there's a great deal of evidence that Kelly wasn't exactly playing with the full deck. A week after the, the murders, he returned to Velasca, told authorities he was Scotland Yard, and asked for a tour of the murder home. No record of the response of the local investigating officers. Kelly was actually arrested for the murders in 1917, and after being interrogated, he signed a confession. Now, this was thought to end the matter. Kelly recanted his confession to witnesses who claimed that Kelly had told him about the murders two hours before the bodies um, were discovered reversed their testimony. Grand jury was convened and ended in a hung jury. Second grand jury eventually found that there was no evidence that directly tied Kelly to the murders. Eventually, they released him and chased him out of town. Then there was a transient railway worker by the name of Andy Sawyer. He seemed obsessed with the killings to the point that his employer reported his erratic behavior to the police. He was a very strong candidate until it was found he'd been arrested for vagrancy in another town on the day of the murder. Police even considered Josiah's brother-in-law's. Sam Moyer and Ray Van Gilder. Now, this was a long shot, of course, but there was a rumor that Sam Moyer and Josiah were enemies. It was determined that was based entirely on hearsay. Additionally, Sam could prove he'd been in Nebraska on the day of the killings. And finally, there was a possibility that the killings of the Moore family were part of a string of random slayings that had taken place across the Midwest in 1911 and 1912. During these years, there had been a string of unsolved Axe murders in various towns, all located in close proximity to the railroad. Also revealed that in these other killings, there were a number of similarities to the Moore murders. Almost all were carried out with an axe or other weapons found outside the home of the victims. The victims all bludgeoned to death in their sleep, and a few had been uh, sexually assaulted. One case, the nightgown was pushed up and the undergarments thrown under the bed, just as in the case of Lena Stillinger. And most of the murders took place on a weekend, usually on Sunday, as in the Moore murders. In some of the cases, the killer attempted to actually, or actually carried out a second attack in the same location. And it should be noted that the woman that worked the night shift at the Velasca Telephone Exchange reported somebody tried to get in the building at about 2 in the morning, but then left. In five of the cases, the killer lay in wait for the victims and lingered sometime after the killings. In four of the cases, the killer covered the victims' faces with blankets. In three of the cases, the killer tried to wash the blood off his hands at the scene. And in two... Uh, lamps with bent wicks were found in the homes just as in Valeska. Logically speaking, due to the similarities, there is a strong case that killings were done by the same person. But in the case of serial killers, it's very hard to find the connection and needed to make an arrest. Unfortunately, the Valeska axe murderer was never found. Another case when the gutted investigating officials just was not successful. Well, we're going to wrap up our unfinished business at this point. We'll be back tomorrow. Uh, actually, this is Friday. We'll be back on Monday when we'll talk more about unfinished business. Till then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.